Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temi, and I'm joined by Andy Leonetti. Hey, Laura. <laughs> oh my god, he's rubbing Hi. his eyes. <laughs> are you, oh, are man. you tired already? Oh man. <laughs> well, this is gonna be fun. And we also have Vadi Himetha. Hello. Uh, hi, I'm just bright and chipper today. I will make up for all of Andy's lack of energy, I guess. Somebody had their coffee. I had decaf. I had decaf. It's all psychosomatic. It's just in your head. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I've got my got my lunch packed up and my shoes tied tight because oh, okay. we're going back to school this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, that... Like my Billy Madison reference. <laughs> so convincing. The worst time of the year. Honestly, true, true. It's like the end of summer blues. I really like that part of being an adult. You no longer have this like remorseful, like I could have done better with my summer school starting again thing because you're just working all the time and yeah, you never get a break. You don't dread, <laughs> you don't dread September yes. like you used to. The back to school season in the last few years, especially in 2021 and 2022, have provoked a lot of uh, agita. Agita? How do you say that word? Angst. Should we go with angst? It's It's been an angsty last few years. But not angsty yeah. kids, angsty yeah. parents. Angsty <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. Parents, angsty lawmakers, angsty school board members, angsty... Um, I ran out there. <laughs> <laughs> everybody. Basically revolving around curriculum and education. And so today we're going to cover a number of topics that have to do with like, what can you teach? What can you not teach? What can you, um, as a parent, prevent the school from teaching your kids? And all of that kind of sort of relates to like First Amendment type things. Andy, you mentioned a lot of agita. If that was going to be our word of the day, we probably should have looked up how to pronounce it. Heading there. I'm heading there (laughs) right now. Agita, according to according to Merriam-Webster. I suppose like like agitation. That makes sense. So as I'm sure anyone who hasn't been living under a rock the last few years has noticed um, kind of the great racial reckoning um, of 2020 sparked by the murder of George Floyd and a summer of protests and all that stuff has that led that first led to a wave of books relating to relating to racism, um, maybe like shining a shining a magnifying glass on some of the darker aspects of American history that that a lot of us older people probably didn't learn that much about in school at any age. Um, As, you know, history, you're kind of breezing through things. And then that kind of bled into then discussions about curriculum and and books in school libraries that that touched on gender, um, sexual orientation, gender expression, any of that stuff. And it's, it is basically turned into... I mean, the cult, like I keep pointing, like I keep saying, you know, the culture war is going to come for everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to, it's, it will, event, it will eventually come for, let's see here, which pair of scissors I keep in my office next to my, next to my <laughs> desk. Um, but, <laughs> um, so what first drew the ire of a lot of, we, we just got to get it out there. Drew the ire of a lot of uh, conservative 
lawmakers Mm -hmm. and parents were some of those books that jumped to the forefront in the summer of 2020. How to be anti-racist, and then and then following on with that, the New York Times, New York Times' big uh, 1619 mm-hmm. project, which kind of, which really kind of even makes even made a Howard Zinn blush <laughs> with uh, how 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 bad things really were back back then. Um, and so what what we first had was a flurry of lawmaking and legislative activity around around those teaching those kinds of uh, what some people argue would be concepts that make white children uncomfortable or feel bad about their about something that they can't control mm-hmm. which is which is their mm-hmm. skin color we are not going to debate no. that <laughs> those things on this not, on this podcast we're not going near it <laughs> you Call up your your angry conservative uncle or your <laughs> or your angry liberal aunt, and you you get your arguing yep. there if you want. Out of a flurry of lawmaking, we have two states: Texas via legislation, and Florida via executive order, which ban the teaching of the 1619 project specifically beyond that we haven't we've we've had a we've had according to pen america which is a essentially a nonprofit that works to spread the gospel of free expression through literature and art and that kind of stuff there have been 19 laws passed that 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 are a little bit ambiguous such as i've got one right here arizona's law bans quote instruction that presents any form of blame or judgment on the basis of race, ethnicity, or sex, and mandates discipline of teachers who violate these provisions. It's interesting because, as we know, like us being millennials, like our public school textbooks were already really whitewashed. But even the whitewashed versions wouldn't pass muster under some of how broad some of these laws that you just recited are. Yeah, and Idaho's bans public schools from, quote, directing or otherwise compelling students to personally affirm, adopt, or adhere to the outlined, quote, critical race theory tenets. Another term that over the last few years has kind of grown devoid of much meaning because it's now just a cudgel. Iowa bans any mandatory staff training at schools that does not teach, advocate, act upon, or promote specific designed, defined concepts from being included in public school curriculum. Wait, what? So. <laughs> <laughs> that could cover anything, including, like, science. Who knows? Veda, who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we've got, and then we had two big ones passed this summer by Florida, in Florida, well, late spring in Florida that kind of give uh, juice to the, quote, kind of parents' rights movement. Um, the first one was passed in March, which we which we referenced in a sidebar when we talked about Ron DeSantis v. Disney. This is the, quote, parents' bill of rights, derisively referred to as the, quote, as the don't say gay bill. This one um, bars public schools from teaching anything related to sexual orientation or gender identity to students in grades K through three. That's pretty explicit. But grades four through 12, 
quote, they cannot teach anything, quote, in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. And that gives a that extends a private right of action to parents to sue schools, uh, just like Texas's abortion law, which we've talked about ad nauseum. And then about a month later, Governor DeSantis signed another bill that banned K through 12 schools from adopting any instructional materials or engaging in any professional development programs that espouses, promotes, advances, or compels belief in certain ideas about race, sex, color, or national origin. Classroom instruction related to past past racial injustice may not, quote, indoctrinate or persuade students to believe these ideas. And employers cannot require, uh, cert- cannot require basically as a condition of employment or licensing or credentialing, espousing, promoting, advancing, compelling individuals to believe in certain ideas about race, sex, color. So that includes promoting DEI initiatives in the workplace? uh, Yeah, I think that's what makes it extra complicated. Yeah, that's, it's extra complicated. The, the, The argument in Florida was, well, people who were against some of these laws were saying, well, we don't really need this law because we don't talk about sexual orientation in kindergarten. Other than the concept of if we're talking about families, which is which is that's the big thing now, which is as the school year is getting underway now and this law is now in effect, a teacher who has who is gay or lesbian or transgender or and they have a part or they have a partner, you have a, you have your family picture on the desk and kids ask, who is that? Okay, kid, kids down the hall can ask who who that teacher's husband is in the picture, but they can't ask me who my wife is if I'm a woman. Or like a big part of, you know, elementary school, middle school is like you call a teacher either Mr. or Mrs., but what if now they want to have a different identity or title? How do you explain that effectively? To yeah, kids? even if you're not, even if your curriculum isn't talking about it, teachers mm-hmm. still are human beings I mean, my teachers didn't didn't want to divulge too much to me about their personal lives with good reason. But when we'd all be like, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Priest, who are you married? Who are you? Yeah, do you go out to the bar every night? <laughs> um, but if they had, they had, they would all have like family pictures on their mm-hmm. desks, and they would talk about families. Or even if you're talking about families, and and a student mm-hmm. has gay parents, and they want to talk about their yeah. parents in say show and tell or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, these laws would prevent those kinds of conversations too. It's unclear. <laughs> I think that's the big it issue. It has sparked like... agita. Um, <laughs> I was reading an AP story from only a couple weeks ago about this where a legal, basically legal department for a school district in Orange County, Florida, was basically going back and forth about what, teachers could and could not talk about. Um, And in Miami-Dade County, there are textbooks for high schools that had pictures for middle schoolers and high schoolers that had pictures of condoms, diaphragms, and IUDs. And those were considered too graphic for middle schoolers. The board originally removed the chapters that covered gender identity and sexuality. They approved the online textbooks, but then reversed their decision last month after coming under public pressure. But then the board reversed itself again last week to adopt the textbooks without the chapters on gender identity and sexuality. Are the challenges to, to the um, teaching from the parent side coming on some kind of constitutional grounds and or is the response to the parents for the people who want to keep this programming coming on 
like First Amendment or constitutional arguments. Because historically, that's what the basis of a lot of um, challenges, both like pro programming in school or against it, has been largely focused, derived from the First Amendment of the Constitution. Which we can get into a little bit of that history now, if y'all want. Yeah, let's do it. We've covered a lot of First Amendment stuff in prior podcasts, so I probably don't need to remind listeners, but... Just to recap, again, the First Amendment, it's mostly short and sweet, but it has a lot of meat to it. It has a lot of different parts. The text of it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. The first sort of arguments, like notable like landmark cases um, about what schools can and can't teach stemmed from the freedom of speech clause and later the establishment clause. Um, but religion is sort of tied up in a lot of this. Like ideology is al- almost almost always linked to some kind of religious opinions. And so even if you're only talking about the freedom of speech and not the freedom of religion or the establishment clause, you'll still get a lot of religious arguments um, asserting, tying them together. So. For example, the whole concept of teaching evolution in schools. Um, You guys might have heard of a pretty famous historic case called the Scopes Monkey Trial. (laughs) It's formally known as the State of Tennessee v. John Thomas Scopes, who is the teacher. Uh, And that's from 1925. And in that case, there was a high school teacher named Scopes, and he was accused of violating Tennessee State's Butler Act, and that act made it unlawful to teach human evolution in any school that was funded by the state government. Could I could I do a Bluff City Law impression here? Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> I, was just, I just felt the urge to, to be like, they're trying to say that we've come down from monkeys. Well, I am, I am from no damn monkey. <laughs> I say, I say, I say. <laughs> You're tuning into Foghorn Leghorn there. I know, I was about to say, this like, it was kind of weird because Scopes, who was the teacher, he was kind of an intentional martyr here. He he couldn't even remember if he'd actually ever taught evolution, but he was sort of going along with the incrimination because like he, he was, um, he was charged with violating the statue. He just sort of went along with it in order to have standing as like, in order to be like a model defendant, right? Um, to take this legal battle up. So I thought that was kind of cool. His verdict was overturned on a technicality. So I guess you could say Scopes was a scapegoat in a monkey trial held by a kangaroo court. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) She's doing animal puns, folks. Oh, man. Animal puns. We're done. Clarence Darrow was his defense attorney, huge name um, in um, in civil rights uh, and legal battles. And this whole... This whole like trial was was not about like it was more about a publicity not a publicity stunt but it was more about the publicity of this sort of fundamentalist modernist battle right modernist who said evolution was not inconsistent with religion versus fundamentalist who said the word of God revealed in the Christian Bible took priority over all human knowledge so it's kind of like just like representing this ongoing theological battle. And the legal issue was actually like a very narrow one of whether the statute was violated at all. Um, and so appellate challenges to the statute were like dismissed. It, it wasn't really about the case itself. And in fact, since the appellate challenges were dim- dismissed, 
the Butler Act continued in effect with the result that evolution just wasn't taught in a lot of schools. And the practical consequence was that after this Scopes decision, textbook publishers also minimized, started, started reducing the coverage of evolution all the way until like the early 60s. And the Butler Act was in place all the way until the until the late 60s when there was a class action from teachers who had actually been fired for teaching evolution. They sued for reinstatement um, and they cited First Amendment rights to free speech rather than the religious or establishment, the religion or establishment clause. And, you know, there were injunctions sought and then a bill repealing the act was passed, but it still lasted a very long time. Then much later in the 80s, we get to the question of the constitutionality of teaching creationism, which is sort of the flip side. Um, And that was in the case that was in the Supreme Court case of Edwards v. Aguillard, um, A-G-U-I-L-L-A-R-D, Aguillard. And so this is. This is revolving, like, promoting, proponents are trying to promote creationism teaching instead of evolution. And you'll see creationism couched under the term, under other terms, like intelligent design. Um, But just know that it's it's the same thing. Um, Intelligent design is, it's promoted by proponents. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's presented. Look, I'm walking on eggshells here. I know it. It's presented by its proponents as an evidence-based scientific theory about life's origins. But there has been a Supreme Court decision um, much later in 2005, Kitts Miller v. Dover Area School District, that established that, it firmly established that creationism and intelligent design were religious teachings and not areas of legitimate scientific research. Not my words, the Supreme Court's words. Mm-hmm. Bipartisan podcast. Um, <laughs> so all that is to say, in the case that I was referring to, the 80s, Edwards v. Aguillard, there was a Louisiana law and that it required that where evolutionary science was taught in public schools. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier, this all relates to public schools. So all these cases, it, it becomes a completely different thing when we're talking about private schools. The, 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 the monkeys trial, also public schools, we're talking about public schools here. Anyway, there was Louisiana law requiring that where evolutionary science was taught in public schools, creation science must also be taught. And this case was not focused on freedom of speech grounds like the evolution cases were, but this one was under the Establishment Clause, also from the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court ruled that this Louisiana law violated the Establishment Clause because the law was specifically intended to advance a particular religion. So what's interesting about this case and the law underpinning it was that the proponents of teaching creationism were asserting academic freedom. And it's since been kind of debatable whether they were using that term correctly like we would now. Um, Their legal theory was one of quote, balanced treatment. The the statute itself was titled Balanced Treatment for Creation Science and Evolution Science Act. And it did not require teaching either creationism or evolution, but it did require that if evolutionary science was taught, then creation science, as it calls it, must be taught as well. So I feel like, I don't know, this is my opinion, I feel like this isn't really an academic freedom argument, but more like a basic concept of fairness, right? Like teaching all the evidence is maybe what they're trying to do. That's what they were envisioning. But of course, there's at least two major problems here. And the first is gonna be contentious, and I guess 
Disclaimer for our listeners, we're just presenting arguments from other legal players, not evangelizing. But as I alluded to, one of those arguments is that creationism isn't evidence-based, as the Supreme Court later determined, as in it's not based on scientific principles to the level that evolution is. So can you really argue that you're not including all the evidence if you don't include creationism when it has been determined to not be evidence? That's contentious. Hopefully, the second argument, less contentious, will be that, okay, even even assuming that this is this is evidence, this still isn't presenting all the evidence because it only introduces theories based on one religion, the Christian faith, and excludes other religions. And I point this out because this latter argument is the one that SCOTUS focused on in the Aguiar case. And th- this is what it focused on in overturning the statute as violating the First Amendment. In its decision, the court opined that teaching, quote, teaching a variety of scientific theories about the origins of humankind to school children might be validly done with the clear secular intent of enhancing the effectiveness of science instruction, which kind of just means like maybe there is room for this sort of balancing of theoretical teaching, but not here because it only promotes one religion. Now, what about the other side of that? Because uh, we've, we've also talked a lot about, and has been in the news a lot, is book banning. And I know, Laura, you've got some some juicy 1A info related to books in school libraries, right? Yeah, I do. Well, and, and it's interesting. Because, and some of this, I guess I'll, I'll do a little teaser for uh, tune in next week when um, <laughs> I will talk a lot about obscenity. About real obscenity, folks. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about pornography next week. I'm going to save some of that for next week. But yeah, I mean, we've seen, it seems like, you know, every few years we have these sort of pushes for various books to be pulled from Um, to be pulled from schools for various reasons. And we're seeing that once again, where like Andy brought up earlier, we're seeing parents pushing for curriculum and for books relating to, yeah, discussions of race, discussions of gender identity, sexual orientation, all of that stuff um, to be, to be pulled. Yeah. And so like how Vedahi was talking about, like talking about curriculum and textbooks and stuff where like people are coming just for people are coming for Huck Finn again, basically. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. Um, and on both sides. Yeah. yeah. And to kill a mockingbird has been pulled from a lot of schools because of it's the, the fact that it, it uses utilizes a lot of derogatory racial terms without really explaining why they're there and that kind of thing. It's interesting because on the one side you have like one part, like one side of folks being like, oh, you can't talk about CRT, you can't explain race. And on the other side, it's people who are like not overlapping with them arguing that you can't talk about Huck Finn if you don't have the other part of it, right? So it's like, what if you just had both, right? Right. It's that little why not both me. <laughs> right. <Or laughs> exactly. Dos. I always say, por no los dos is something I say all the time. It's mostly like relating to food where <laughs> someone <laughs> says, should we get this or this? Tacos. And I say, por no los dos. But yeah, book banning has by no means gone away. And we do have a Supreme Court precedent related to this from 1982. This is Board of Education versus PICO. And in that, the Supreme Court held that school officials cannot remove books based on, quote, narrowly partisan or political grounds because it amounts to the official suppression of ideas under the First Amendment. Uh So So it's freedom of speech. It's freedom of speech. And keep in mind, this only applied to the removal of books from school libraries, 
So school boards still have broad discretion in the management of school affairs like the curriculum, but they have to exercise that discretion according to this Supreme Court decision in a manner that comports with the, quote, transcendent imperatives of the First Amendment. If uh, Slaughterhouse-Five was already in the high school library, too bad, it's, it's going to be harder to remove it. Shout out to my freshman in high school English teacher that allowed me to do a book report project on Slaughterhouse-Five, by the way. My, <laughs> apparently my, my fragile 14-year-old brain could handle it. Well, and something that I wanted to bring up just as sort of a, a general, I don't know. A, and what, well, okay, I have two things I wanted to bring up. One, the the three of us talking right now are the three hosts on this show who don't have kids. So yeah, I guess, you know, take, take, my, like, <laughs> take my opinion on this as the opinion of someone who does not have school-age children or children at all. But I, yeah, something I wanted to bring up is that a lot of times when people want books banned, it's part of this whole parental rights thing that that Andy was talking about and that parents should be able to choose what their kids read, which is a perfectly reasonable thing. But many school libraries already have processes in place to prevent individual students from checking out certain books. And so if if you are concerned about something that you don't want your kid to read, you can also talk to your librarian and they will probably help you out. That is a legal process to follow the process that's set forth by your local school district. So that's it. Yeah, that's something to, to keep in mind in all this. You don't necessarily have to go to your state legislature or even the school board. You can just go to the librarians and, and see what their procedures are for that kind of thing. But a plug in for the civic engagement section of findlaw.com. Yes. <laughs> we do encourage we encourage residents of the United States to exercise their rights, which includes going before their local school board to speak Absolutely. speak their mind about what they feel mm-hmm. local local curriculum should include, whether that should mean you want more stuff or less stuff you know, more power to you. But also what we say in that section is what I will put in a plug for is uh, comporting yourself appropriately when when at these (laughs) meetings. If you are yelling and screaming and then a video of you ends up on YouTube, your options for getting that video removed Mm -hmm. of you acting a fool in a public public setting are limited. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Absolutely. So just, yes, please exercise your rights and also remember that the internet is a thing. And so also if you tell your 15-year-old kid that they can't read something, also remember that the internet is a thing. (laughs) Right. Oh, they'll find a way. Oh my gosh. I had a friend, I won't say who, I had a friend growing up who whose parents didn't want them to read Harry Potter. Oh boy, here we we go. So Mm -hmm. you bet that person just came to my house and read my copies of them. I got in so much trouble for bringing a Harry Potter lunchbox to my Christian school. It was private, and so they could get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Yeah, you mentioned, Vadihi, you mentioned private schools earlier, and it's a good point that, like, private schools can, in a lot of ways, do whatever they want when it comes to this. It's it's public schools that have to comply with the First Amendment. Shout out to Carlinville High School, which did not, a public school in the state of Illinois, which did not allow me or any of my classmates to wear uh, Marilyn Manson on any clothing. Oh, <laughs> wow. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.